Grand Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Davian Tynarius Brown reads It Takes Guts by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, Davian will share his response. Then, Scott and I will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. We hope you enjoy. It Takes Guts by Scott Kaiser Read by Davian Tynarius Brown Oh, I love it, said Imy thrilled to have received a beautiful sterling silver necklace as a parting gift from Sam. So you'll remember how much I love you while you're away this summer, said Sam. I won't take it off until I see you again, she said, putting it around her neck. I promise. Aimi was on her way to the remote fishing village of Akutan in Alaska's Aleutian Chine, where she'd be spending the summer processing fish at a seafood plant. The work was brutal, requiring long hours standing on one's feet gutting fish with a fillet knife. But the pie was extremely good, good enough to pay for an entire year of college in just three months. Sam and Amy met during their senior year in college. They were cast opposite one another in the drama department's production of The Two Gentlemen of Verona, with Amy as Julia and Sam as Proteus. Sam and Amy were attracted to one another immediately, as they both shared the same quirky sense of humour. When they started dating, Sam was embarrassingly inexperienced with women, but Amy was very experienced, a bit wild even, and eventually she drew him out of his shell. Amy lived in an apartment, so they began sleeping together every night after rehearsal. When Amy left for Alaska, they made plans to live together in three months when she returned. After Amy left for Alaska, however, Sam started to spend time with Amy's roommate, Ruthie, who played Sylvia in the same production of Two Gents. Sam had not intended to break his faith with Amy. He was not fishing around for other women. But where Amy was wild, Ruthie was stable. Where Amy was unpredictable, Ruthie was dependable. And where Amy was cynical, Ruthie was cheerful. Besides that, the look in Ruthie's eyes and the feel of her skin were irresistible, intoxicating to Sam. Before long, he was hooked. Of course, he would never have the guts to approach Ruthie had it not been for Amy teaching him how to be comfortable around women, how to talk to her, how to please her. Well, no matter, he said to himself, dismissing that thought. The heart wants what it wants. Sam hated the idea of telling Amy that he and Ruthie were now a couple via text or email, and there was no way he was going to call her on the phone about it, so he sent her an old-fashioned handwritten letter via snail mail, and waited to hear back. 
Three weeks later, an oil-stained envelope arrived in his mailbox. Doubtless, it was Amy's answer to his letter. The envelope was marked Damaged in Transit by the Postal Service. Sam cut the envelope open with a pair of scissors and poured the contents out onto his desk. It was a dead fish. There, stuffed in the fish's anus, hung the silver necklace that Sam had given to Amy. There was nothing else inside the envelope. That was It Takes Guts, read by Davian Tynarius Brown, recording from Knoxville, Tennessee, where he's pursuing an acting MFA. We look forward to welcoming Davian for his first season with ISF when we produce our postponed 2020 summer season. In the meantime, we're thrilled to welcome him digitally. Here are some thoughts Davion had upon reading this story. Yeah, uh, this piece is something, right? No, it's it's actually really a really interesting piece. Uh, I can't speak too much on the idea of relationships because I haven't been in the dating scene for a very long time. But um, personally me, uh, anyway, but... This did bring up a memory of a saying that someone told me once I was talking to this bloke and uh, he was just giving sage advice, I guess. Uh, but one of the sayings that he, he uh, told me was that the saying goes like this. Uh, you will never marry your soulmate. And I know that sounds like super defeatist, you know, in the event that it's like, it's essentially like this. The person you marry will never be the individual who resonates perfectly with you because there's always someone somewhere that you will resonate with more on a certain level than your partner and then that person there'll be another person beyond them and beyond them and beyond them so you'll never marry the person who's technically your quote-unquote soulmate and the idea of it being that it's impossible to find the perfect partner and I know, again, it sounds super cynical and incredibly defeating uh, of, you know, relationships and things of that nature. But I think the point of it is to not go and look for perfection in your partner because, you know, it's all about compromise when it comes to a relationship. So, again, I don't know, but that's what, the, that's what this story brought up. This story brought back up that saying that this bloke told me several years ago. So, yeah, I I personally don't know anything about relationships, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to see something like this. And a dead fish with a silver necklace shoved in its ass is definitely a, a strong message, <laughs> right? The Goose Community Grocer, becoming part of what you love about South Whidbey. Featuring the best beer selection and largest bulk food selection on Whidbey Island, profits from the Goose are reinvested back into our local community. Learn more at goosegrocer.com. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Today, Scott is here to talk about It Takes Guts, read, as you just heard, by Davian T. Brown. Scott, welcome back. Hi, Alina. Um, two gents we're going to discuss today. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> there's so much good stuff in Two Gents and also some challenges. Um, but I wonder first if you could tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind this story specifically. Well, when I started to think about Two Gents and how I could contemporize the story, uh, I did remember uh, there was a, um, a college friend that I had, and this is actually based on his experience, um, that uh, he did, in fact, uh, have, uh, have a girlfriend who went off to Alaska every summer to uh, work in a, a fishery. And um, during the summer, uh, he, um, he wound up uh, having a relationship with somebody else. And when she found out, um, she did, in fact, send him an envelope full of fish guts. <laughs> It's so fun. These conversations are so fun because I'm always so curious what is going to be, you know, your kind of uh, dramatic flair and what is real. And this was not one that I was expecting to be real. I How creative. I could have made this up. Uh, this, this is so bizarre. Um, I, I just don't know that I could have made it up from scratch. And uh, But it, it, in fact, it is, in fact, based on um, uh, someone who I knew and... Uh, um, this, this in fact happened. Someone sent him a dead fish. From wow. the fishery. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. That that's so creative. Good for her. <laughs> that's just like such a statement. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it made an impression on him as well. <laughs> and now it is forever immortalized in this story. Um, I do worry that at some point he will read the story and recognize it. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure he would be delighted at this point. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the play, um, Two Gents. Of course, uh, I know that you've worked on this because, or have been around working on it, being that the festival did it in 2014 uh, with an all-female cast, um, which I would like to talk about it at some point at the end sure. of this conversation, what that production was for you because I definitely was really interesting to me to work on such a gendered show with um all female-bodied people um but before that can you tell me a little bit about um generally your your feelings about this play well we've discussed this before I think that uh you know the thing that makes this play so challenging now is is the uh the the sexual assault at the end and the fact that uh, Proteus is forgiven for it so readily, um, you know, the lack of, of, of genuine consequences for that act, um, it, it really is uh, problematic. And, and as I suggested, I think, uh, in an earlier uh, podcast, that uh, it, it actually makes, in my mind, the play um, more of a problem play than I think we are willing to, I think, admit at this point. Um, I, I hope over the next few years that there'll be more and more discussion about this, but uh, I do think it should be lumped in with some of the problem plays because of the of that particular ending and that arc. Um, but even having said that, the play has other issues. I mean, it is one of the better comedies, certainly, um, but I think sometimes the, the reason it's successful, maybe audiences don't realize this, is there are often made... Uh, very heavy cuts made uh, to the clowns in particular. If you actually look on the page 
at uh, the 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 uh, launch and speed dialogue and and their comic routines. Uh, often that stuff is very heavily cut because it is extremely hard to make that stuff funny. Uh, the launch with the dog crab, that speech is very funny. It doesn't need to be cut. And people generally tend to think about that when they think about the clowns. They don't think about sort of the old sort of crusty dialogue and, and uh, improvisations between the two clowns that you see elsewhere in the play that are often very heavily cut or amended. Um, so yeah, it, it can be challenging. I think sometimes directors, producers, high schools, colleges, they think, oh, we'll do We'll do two gents. It's a great play. It's funny. And then when you get into rehearsing it, you realize, oh, wow, you really you really have to work very hard to make some of this stuff uh, funny to a contemporary audience. Um, and uh, especially with the love triangle, um, you really have to have some some wonderful physical comedians as well for those scenes to uh, to make them work. So well, I think the thing is harder than most people realize. Yeah. And and. You know, I want it to be like a cautionary tale about not being an asshole, you know, but the the boys are just <laughs> such problems throughout there. You know, this the women are so objectified and there's nothing like it's it's also superficial, which if there was. If. If Sylvia just had something to say at the end, then that could be I or either one of them. If Sylvia or Julia spoke at the end, then it could be we could we could take it as like, oh, they've learned something through this play. But it doesn't at the end of the play, it doesn't really feel like they have learned anything. I, I so agree with that. Uh, I mean, the height of objectivity is when Proteus looks at a picture of Sylvia and Ugh. decides he's in love with her. That's you know that's very sticky stuff, um, and you know. When you look at the way this play ends and you compare it, let's say, to Love's Labor's Lost, where the women are very clear, uh, you guys you guys aren't ready. You're, you're not mature enough. You need to grow a little bit. You need to earn our love. Um, so we are going to put this off for at least a year, and you need to prove yourselves. Uh, you know, Sylvia and Julia, they're, they're, not only do they not get to say that, they get to say almost nothing. Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe it's the same playwright sometimes. I, I know. It is. And in in an all-woman production, you know, it's there were so many moments where it was so ironic to have female-bodied people up on stage saying these, like, hideous things about female-bodied people. And in so many times in rehearsal i remember erica sullivan who played julia being like I, this i i i can't do this because <laughs> it was just like so frustrating it's so frustrating it's a very frustrating play and i don't know i don't know how we fix it right now and make it palatable in a post me too age you know i just I yeah, I don't. I, I don't know either. I wish I'd, I did know. Um, I think you know. Of course, because I'm a writer, my my mind always goes to well. I'm I'm going to write some speeches for for Sylvia at the end, and write some words for Julia at the end, and and make it work. Um, but uh, short of that, I don't. I don't know how you you make it work without seriously amending it, uh, um, which not everybody would uh, would approve of or or enjoy. 
I know. As as I think you know, that's my request for um, Shakespeare's Other Women Part 2 would be um, those monologues, please. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. That, that would have been a, a good thing to have done uh, um, at the uh, just to, to write a Julia or Sylvia monologue uh, for the end. Um, I'm curious, since you're, you're bringing up the, uh, the all-female two gents, whether, whether you feel the audience got as much out of the production as the, uh, the actresses who actually were in the cast. Well, you know, I, I think probably not. <laughs> um, again, it was, it was on the Elizabethan stage, and I think that... Um, I think that the work that we did in rehearsal and the story that we were telling on that stage was that was maybe not the the stage for that story because I think so much of the work was was really intimate and really specific and because that as as you said in um maybe our last conversation um that stage really, really calls for big physical choices in order for story to be conveyed. Um, I think that made it hard for us not to feel, made it hard for, and, and, you know, I was outlaw number whatever in a page. Um, But even in in being in the ensemble of that show, it made it hard for it to feel like we weren't um, creating caricatures with our, you know, embodiment of masculinity and we did we had so many really really incredible rehearsals working with masculine physicality and like investigating status and I did learn so much as an actor um that I've brought into other processes with me that I'm I'm really really grateful for having had that experience and having had the challenge of telling that story on that stage but in terms of what the audience found from it no I don't think that it was nearly as um, as vibrant or um, exciting to to the audience as it was for us. Uh, that that's a shame. I, I mean, it was a. I completely applaud the experiment of doing an all female uh, two chance. I think it's a it was a noble experiment. It is a shame that it wasn't in a smaller space. My sense in watching it was uh, uh, that, uh, as you say, that 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 kind of embodiment of male physicality. Um, pushed the style towards something which was uh, more, you know, satirical, uh, send up, um, and uh, it, it didn't have a lot of subtlety when you were in the Elizabethan watching it. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is that it's very hard to sustain that over two and a half hours. That to watching women send up men, um, to see how 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 men are, do you see how how lunkheaded they are? Do you see how <laughs> self-centered they are? Whatever was going on, you know, the physicality uh, really lent itself to um, to you know much broader strokes. And I actually would have loved to have seen it in the rehearsal room because I, I imagine that what you're saying is correct that uh, all the interior work that was being done and all the discussions that you were all were having as a female cast uh, somehow didn't get across in that venue. Yeah, I think I think so. And you know, we had very through the whole run of it, we had very small houses. It never really found found its stride, I think, with with the audience, um, which was really unfortunate because the work in the rehearsal room, Carpenter, we rehearsed in Carpenter Hall a little bit and mostly at the Lincoln School. So we weren't even on campus. We were, you know, off away from OSF doing this work 
at, in a gymnasium and it was like our own little world in there. And some of that work that happened in that room was was really beautiful and so nuanced. And it's just really, really hard to to share that in that large space. I think this has been the theme of the last uh, couple of podcasts is that venue really does make a huge difference um, in terms of, in, you know, interpretation um, and, and performance style. And uh, I think all too often the venue can, can destroy the work. Um, of course, it's also possible for the venue to make, to make the work uh, soar, but uh, it is one of the major challenges of Oregon Shakespeare's uh, Elizabethan, theater that it, the size of that venue demands a certain performance style and often um if the rehearsals don't point towards uh performing in that venue uh things can really come apart when you get into dress rehearsal definitely i think the the right stories and the right style and everyone being on a very specific same page about what that is um can lead to some phenomenal stuff in that space. But um, I think that also as actors, we really relish, <laughs> the, we relish the nuance. And like when you're feeling it, you're feeling it. And you feel like that will, you know, the energy of that can be convey, conveyed to the back row of any space. But like it really can't. Well, I've sat in a lot of rehearsals for Elizabethan shows, and and uh, I have to say it's it's rarer than you might think that a director is working from day one in the rehearsal room for that venue. Um, I can only count on one hand the number of directors who would from from jump first day on your feet would say, uh, "I love that choice. Let's make sure it's going to play." Um, and say that over and over and over again. You know, I'm not sure that's going to play. We have to find something larger, or I love that, but we have to find a way to expand it. Or, you know, it's. I found it was very rare uh, in rehearsal for directors to be cognizant of the venue um, all the time in rehearsal, um, and that that takes actually an enormous amount of experience working in that theater and making a lot of mistakes and falling on your face a lot before a director would really understands what works and what doesn't out there. Uh, and that's frankly why I think it's very hard for first time directors to work outside on the Elizabethan stage because they haven't really uh, learned uh, through failure yet. And why I think directors who have done a half dozen shows out there really start to figure out uh, how to work out there in rehearsal. Um, you know, in going further back when there were resident directors at OSF, uh, we really, did form master directors, people who really understood the venue and what would work. Uh, I think the more guest directors that were brought in uh, for one-offs, uh, a lot of that uh, kind of institutional knowledge was lost, which frankly is why a lot of shows um, tended to uh, get bogged down out there. Um, directors would come in and, uh, and um, not really know the venue well enough to direct for it. Mm. That's a shame. Well, thank you so much, Scott. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Alina. Play I have a lot of feelings about, so I appreciate getting to dive into it a little bit. Um, we'll talk to you again next week. I look forward to it. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium. 
38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser. Our thanks to our sound engineer and composer extraordinaire, Orion Michael Schwamm. This episode was sponsored in part by Bob Hodges and Peggy Juvie, as well as the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.